What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I am thrilled to be here today with Peyton Ihimi. Peyton is a tech maven. She's currently head of Americas for public policy at Bumble. She also spent a great deal of her career at Facebook. Previously, she served in the United States Senate as a U.S. Army officer. And Peyton, I would love to just kick things off today and and hear a little bit more about you. Could you share part of your story with our audience? Well, absolutely. And first of all, just thank you so much for having me and for the audience. You know, thank you for listening. I hope to to be as helpful to you as you are to me. To focus a little bit on myself, I mean, I'll just start out as just regular person. So, you know, you have here a black woman who's a veteran who's a mother, you know, small business owner. And these are many hats that many people fill, maybe in different ways. I would say uh, my work history is not so traditional. My work history, I started actually when I was 17 years old and I entered the military. It's so young, by the way, if you don't know that your parent has to sign you in because you're not legally able to join. So I entered the delayed entry program at 17 and served for a couple years. And then I went to college on a Green and Gold scholarship, actually, and became an Army officer after attending college for four years. I became an intelligence officer, and that pivoted my trajectory of work in a different way. And so um, without the long story, multiple, multiple deployments, uh, combat deployments, but I eventually found my way back to the United States with a purpose after the, all that I had seen to focus in on uh, domestic and international policy with government. And so that's where in some of the tours, I worked in the Senate. As you had mentioned, the U.S. Senate, I worked in the Pentagon, but I also was a senior advisor for technology in the Obama White House before joining a corporate and spending some time at companies like Facebook and currently at Bumble. Peyton, when I think about the the path that you've walked, I can't believe all these different experiences that you've had already in your life. And and you talked about needing your parents' permission to enter into the army. What did they say to you when you said you wanted to serve? What was their reaction? Well, I think, especially again, as I highlighted, coming from a diverse background, there's a lot of hesitation about entering some fields and some disciplines, the hesitation comes from just the amount of time and investment that a family, maybe if they're struggling, has put into a child and they really want them to be able to go further than they did. I think some of the other responses are is, again, being an other, your family, especially your parents, are very concerned that you might enter into organizations or ecosystems that will continue to other you and where you'll be marginalized and, and how that um, would form your success. And then 
I think most people can relate to this. If you don't come from a military family, it might seem a little bit scary about your child going away, especially at such a young age. But I was a pretty determined person and there wasn't an argument to be had per se because I had really made up my mind. I just needed them to sign the paper. (laughs) (laughs) And, but I mean, that's a lot of conviction to have at 17. You know, especially because I'm sure you were mindful of some of those question marks that that you were describing that your parents might have had. Why were you so sure? You know, how did you know that this was the right step for you as such a young woman? I think the biggest thing was I didn't know and I wasn't sure what my future was, but I was damn sure that I wanted to change my past. And so that was the focus. I don't know what I was stepping into, but I knew I wanted to step forward. And that in itself is a motivation and a driving force. That that phrase is is so powerful. I didn't know what I was stepping into, but I knew I wanted to step forward. And you stepped forward in a way in which you put service front and center. And I think you you neglected to mention this in your in your introduction of yourself, you continue to serve today, Peyton. That's true. I, this year would be my 21st year in uniform. So I spent uh, about 14, 15 years on active duty and special operations across the globe. And then I came back and served in the DC National Guard after I had left to corporate and served for five more years. So DC Guard, you may have noticed and seen from the TV. So that was the George Floyd riots was there, was on the ground with troops and Lieutenant Colonel, so commanding troops, but also for the January 6th riots was there on the ground and same thing supporting troops and, and many, many of us were out there for those events. I mean, just like I think about your service and I think about your commitment to the country and it's so striking to me, partly because I'm empathizing with you as a really busy professional and a busy working mom, you know, and like your career is so demanding. Your day job is so demanding. And then you also have your family life on top of it. And yet you choose to create time to continue serving. And I just think it's so admirable. And it just strikes me every time I get to talk with you about that commitment and the conviction and the sacrifice that you also have to make to be there as a service member in our country. I just wanted you to know, I think that that's remarkable. And I'm curious about the driving motivation behind that. Well, I think there's a little levity to it. You don't end up with all those arrows in your quiver all at once. You're picking them up one by one. And so maybe a culmination of years, you realize, wow, this thing is getting heavy. But as you're slowly picking those up, you don't realize it. And so you're shifting your life with each new arrow that you're, you're picking up to put in that quiver and trying to balance it and shift it. I will also say once having a family, you really realize how heavy that is, is because there's certain things that are maybe can't fail in corporate because it might be a financial item. There's things that can't fail in the military because it could be life or death. But then there's another sense of responsibility when it's family or children, because both of those 
are true. There's financial failure. There's a cultural failure if you're around, if you're shaping that person. But it's also life or death. Toddlers do try to hurt themselves all the time. <laughs> oh my gosh, Peyton. So I have a three-year-old. <laughs> so I'm There's just kind of coming at it. <laughs> yes. And she's this terrible combination of very brave and no judgment. So I'm empathizing with that statement. Um, the very best of us and the very worst of us at the same time. Yes, in one tiny bundle, exactly. Peyton, you mentioned serving on the ground in D.C. during George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement and also on January 6th when our, our capital was kind of convulsed with, with violence. And what were you thinking about in, in those moments, showing up and serving our country at two extraordinarily painful junctures for our nation? And you were right there, right at the heart of it. Will you talk to us about what you were thinking and feeling in those moments? Well, I'm also a D.C. resident, so these are streets and roads and sidewalks that I've traversed over 10 years or, or more, sometimes in uniform, sometimes not. And so I think it was very personal to be in a position where you're policing your own community, people trying to harm or people that you want to protest and you're protecting them from harm, but also trying to protect uh, historic buildings while also preserving people's right to, to speak out for things that are pretty egregious all around. I thought a lot about my time in uniform that was not in the U.S., which is how it should be. I thought about the multiple tours in Iraq during the wars. I thought about the humanitarian assistance work that I've done with Haiti when the response happened. And I remember the faces of those children who had lost their parents and lost family. I remember the faces of, you know, so many going through harm. I remember lots of pain and, and lots of disaster, but I remember there was a lot of hope when I was in these countries, there weren't people who were feeling sorry for themselves. There weren't people who were disengaged from the political apparatus. These are people who were giving their life for it. And so when I walked the streets of D.C. and saw that, I knew most of the people here, less than 1% of the people in the U.S. have ever served, don't have that context. It's really what drove me to make sure that this stayed peaceful, continued to be peaceful because I've seen what the um, end result is, is what it's not. And so I, I would say that that was very top of mind, being able to flashing back between both instances. And you're also wondering, like, you know, how could this be happening? How is this here, right? What decisions or lack of decisions were made where, where this is the situation? So that was a lot of um, what I thought about, and of course, just in addition to trying to keep all of the, the troops and civilians safe and just doing my job. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Peyton. And am I remembering correctly, is your father from Nigeria or your father's family? Yes, my father is uh, from Nigeria. Absolutely. Your father's from Nigeria. And I remember you, you sharing that with me in a previous conversation. And you have traveled and, and worked globally so extensively. But you also had an international perspective, even in your own home growing up. Do you think that that informed your perspective to serve in some way and or your perspective on 
how to maintain perspective in the midst of these two very different points of crisis in our country. So for your first question about um, to serve or how to serve, the dynamic in other countries varies about who's going into military, their background, et cetera. So I would say that that's not as consistent with the, with the United States. Not all countries have what we would call a quote-unquote professional armed service, right? Um, they sometimes have conscripts, et cetera. So I just you know point out that there is a, there's a lot of variance there. And for my father's family, et cetera, weren't people who were in the military. You know, my father studied to be a doctor, et cetera, and much more on the academic side than my other parts of the family, you know, in business. While we did have veterans in our background, um, it wasn't the uh, Forrest Gump scenario of the father, the father, the father, 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 or in my case, the chick, right? The girl. But the, the sense of perspective is absolutely true. And I didn't need that just from my father, from his experience in Nigeria. I have that from my mother's side as well. When you come from meager means, you don't need the education to know what's at risk. And so I always knew things were better here than they are in some other places. But also because of my military experience, I also know how quickly that can diminish if you're not doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was asking partly because I, I just interviewed Othman Loraki, who's the CEO and co-founder of a really interesting company called Color. And he grew up in Morocco before emigrating to the U.S. for college. And he said, and I often hear this from, from our CEOs who are either immigrants themselves or first gen, that we have so much work to do in this country. And yet it's the only country in the world where they could have succeeded at this level. And to kind of see their pride and the perspective that they have about what's possible, while also really respecting the fact that, you know, we have important work to do as a society and as a nation and we're not done and we never will be. Yeah, I agree. And I, my mother's mind has been here since, since we were brought here and my father was the immigrant. So I, I definitely have both sides of that and, and get to see and learn from both sides of the family. You know, there's um, the perspective of people who've been here for a while, but I've not been allowed to access the wealth and the um, opportunity. And then also the perspective of someone who's newer here, who's coming from a different background, um, who's very, very, very specific on whether it's school, et cetera, et cetera, that they're trying to achieve in, in a short amount of time. So I oscillate between both worlds and, and, and see both worlds, and there are perspectives, but they're, they're also not the same. Um, mm-hmm. So I understand that as well. It's interesting to hear you say that you you oscillate between both worlds, because I think of that as being true for you also professionally, you know, with, with your service as an army officer now in the guard, and then the leadership roles that you've held in the tech sector and in, in different companies. And it, it strikes me that you could translate between the two and maybe be a bridge between the two. Do you see yourself that way? You can't really exist in corporate America without being a bridge if you are an other. 
So I walk into the room, I'm not presenting as an army officer. I have no rank. I have no uniform. I have no identifying items, which would allow people to see a rank or positioning education or status. What they see is what's before them. So that's what I'm wearing and my skin color and any other physical attributes. So I would say bridging starts from what people see first. And so I bridge first as a woman. Then I have to bridge first as a black woman. Then I have to bridge first as many other things before it gets down to bridging as a military person. So there's lots of walking bridges. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that in military service, you can walk into a room and people understand something about you before you even start talking because you're wearing it. You know, you're wearing your rank, you're wearing other other very obvious symbols of your experience, your status, you know, and who you are within that organization. And so it kind of, it takes some of the pressure off, especially I would imagine when you, when you are coming from an underrepresented organization or community to explain who you are. And then in, in the tech sector, of course, none of that is true. And as you said, you're walking in and in some ways needing to introduce yourself. I wonder if you've ever thought about or have recommendations for how to see people and and how to engage right off the bat and reduce the burden on the person from the underselected background to have to do that translation and be the bridge. You know, is there a way that we can encourage our community, our colleagues to meet us halfway, to do their best to meet us halfway and share some of that load? Yeah, I think the common understanding is just how you phrased it. So often you're asked is, what are you doing or how are you bridging or how are you telling people who you are? But you're not really seeing that question posed to the other side of what are you doing to walk across the bridge? How are you trying to ingratiate yourself with this person or find out more about them. And so I think it kind of as you're trying to do is it's really flipping the question a bit. So that responsibility is not on the other all the time. I did serve in the military, but I also served in government, right? I, I served in, in many places. And just because um, I was in one place doesn't maybe mean in a certain setting or room that that's how I'm showing up. You know, I might have all those lessons and things in the background, but it doesn't mean also that I'm trying to present as my rank or present as a former White House advisor or as a former Senate staffer. You know, in that case, maybe I'm trying to represent as a tech lead or a public policy lead or an admin lead and need to be respected in that way. And so it's just more reading the room um, because maybe they don't need those other things that you that you are or they don't think that they do at the time. Um, so it's just trying to understand and read the room. And so you can um, show up just as who you are. All those things are, are who you are. But maybe the job that the task that's currently in front of you, one or two or three of those skills might be better to put forward to accomplish um, that mission or job or task. <laughs> Thank you, Peyton. And I, I was reflecting as you were as you were saying that that you have in the various roles that you've played in these really different sectors in our nation, you've seen the best of that sector or that environment, you know, as your military service, your government service, your leadership in tech, 
And are there themes from those very different arenas that you wish would cross over or you try to encourage to cross over to, to the other spaces that, that you operate in? You know, the best of the military service, the best of our government service, the best of our, our tech sector? Yeah, there's one thing, especially in corporate, that I saw that a muscle that could be developed a lot more is this sense of allyship and team. And I don't mean it in a very superficial way, like we are on a team, but you really get to see it when you see someone being paid a disservice, maybe disrespected, whether it's just racism or just belittling someone that can be done with pay, that can be done with what positions they're given or what jobs they're given or what roles they're given. There's all different ways that these kind of things show up. One of the things that I wish would cross over more is, is someone standing in that storm for somebody else because they see it. They're in a position of power, even a peer. You know, even a junior person doesn't realize they're in a position of power because you're not the one being targeted. As long as you're not in, in that bullseye, you are in a position of power. And someone to decide that they are going to use whatever they have to stand in that storm to help and speak up and protect for someone else is something that I, I see that needs to be developed quite a bit more. And that other especially the military, but other parts of government have just been able to flex that muscle more. And maybe it's required of them because the um, ramifications of not doing so are great, right? And it's not an individual, you know, there are no individuals win sports, you know, you know, win victories in government and the military. That's not so the same in corporate, you know, individuals can lead things and move things and get in individual wins. But when it's, when it's that type of harm, that's something I'm, I'm especially passionate about is who's going to be that ally, who's going to be standing up when they see that, or do you just, you know, go to your next meeting, ignore the email, you know, walk away from that conversation, or do you step up? You're remarking on courage and bravery and, you know, conviction and fairness and equality and culture. And I, so Breakline, is, as we've talked about, Breakline has grown a lot, but we started with our veterans vertical. And I feel grateful every day that that's where we've started because the veterans created the foundation of our culture. And there's just something so outstanding about getting to work with veterans in, in that capacity. And, and you just talked about a really important aspect of that, you know, the idea of putting others before myself, putting service before myself, creating a team that can really function in a healthy way together. And I think there's also a pragmatism that I hear about less, but I certainly see it, which is, I don't know that any, and Breakline has worked with about a thousand veterans at this point. I don't know that I've ever heard a single one of them say that they were well-resourced in their service, but they were still expected to get the job done. <laughs> and so it required ingenuity and creativity and grit and hustle. And there's something so pragmatic about that mindset. Like, I've got a job to do, and I'm going to do it whether or not it's easy for me. Did you see that element in, in your service as well? 
Of course, it's, 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 it's almost a foundational element. You know, if you need four pencils to get that paper done, you're going to get issue three, right? You know, it, it just, it is, it is what it is. I mean, even very simple administrative tasks like signing in or signing out of a base when you're ETSing or PCSing, that's hustle, you know, just trying to, and that's just a very administrative task. But anyone who's had to do that will tell you, you're going there, they're closed, you have to drive around, run around, et cetera. But you know that you've got a certain day that you need to meet. And I just say that, you know, as more of a joke, because that's, you know, a low stress environment, but in in a high stress environment, you only have the tools that are, that are before you and you, there's no excuses, right? And there's no do overs. So you have to have a team that you can trust and that, you know, that they've got your back literally. And you also have to be able to, you know, pull something together, right? Because you want to go home and you want others to go home. So you have no choice. Mm-hmm. And Peyton, I want to bring us up to, to present day. And I'd love for you to, to talk about your leading the public policy effort in North America for Bumble. Can you share more about what you're thinking about? You know, what, what lens you have on that, where you're spending your time the types of initiatives and progress that you're really interested in pursuing in this role? Absolutely. So I'm heading up uh, North America. So, you know, U.S., Mexico, Canada, but I'm also heading up Latin America, the entire region in the Caribbean. So first thing that is top of mind for me is equity. That is really a driving thing for me, especially after seeing a lot of lapses in equity in previous roles and positions. And if I can build a team and build policies that put that equity first, that is a success. And it's a legacy that I hope that I can leave behind with the team. Bumble, you know, was a draw to me because their first thing was we're trying to build something out of safety. It was based out of bad situations that our founder, Whitney Wolf, heard was exposed to, especially how they dealt with women and the internet. And the goal was, is how do you build safe, you know, how do you build equitable relationships of all kinds? And that's something that I've had to live and been both sides of it, been on the receiving end of, of, of not healthy, you know, interactions and whether it's in corporate, et cetera, but also hopefully, you know, I've, I've also had the opportunity to, to be the opposite of that for someone else. Uh, so big things top of mind is picking low hanging fruit. There's some issues in the world that, you know, all the bright minds are all over. There's the, the bench is crowded. But because of that, there's some spaces that have kind of not been looked over and neglected. And so one of them is this issue of a cyber flashing. You know, not to be crude, but someone flashed you on the street, it's actually illegal in every state across across the United States. But it's actually if it's done digitally, someone's doing it through a social media, a, a, a job networking site, they're airdropping it to your phone. It's actually not only in one state. And it's Texas, and that's because Bumble let a bill there, which is where they're founded, to criminalize that kind of act. My key task for the U.S. is driving those bills across the United States and picking up that uh, baton to, to do so. And in the conversations, it's ranged that people don't know that it's happening because they're not on the internet. People don't know that's happening because they happen to not be one of the audiences that 
people like to send that to, which tend to be women, which tend to be black and brown communities, et cetera. And then other people think someone else is doing something about it. And, oh, I thought it was illegal. And then other people think, oh, no big deal. But I think bad behavior you know, begets other bad behavior. And so it was just, a, especially someone with a national security background, which is I, I do, this is, you know, this domestic type of issue is not mine, but something I'm very passionate about is when people are doing wrong to other people. And, and it's just festering. That really, really gets my hackles up. And so I'm driving forward with this in, in multiple states. Um, we actually just in Virginia, it just passed through the entire legislature. It was a hard fight and just um, the other day it passed. And so it's going up to the mm. governor's signature. So that is something that we're pretty proud of. And the uh, policymakers, some women policymakers, Filipino, Black, you know, some of our co-sponsors, white men. I mean, this is all hands, Republicans, mm. Democrats, we're bringing them all together. And again, we can tackle some of these small things. It's just a proof of concept that we could probably do things that are, that are bigger and more complicated. Well, I love this particular example because it's also an example of you stepping into the void. You know, you, you talked about the importance of coming forward and really allying yourself with other people who might need or want your help and support. And that's exactly what you are doing with this particular issue. So I I see it as such a clear alignment between what you say and, and what you do, Peyton. The other reason why I really loved it was because you talked about this bipartisan support and cooperation, you know, like really getting folks across the board behind this work because it's the right thing to do. And at this moment of sort of extreme polarization in our country, it's just a great reminder that we can cooperate. You know, we can find areas of mutual interest where it's important to make progress and really focus in on those. I totally agree. You know, I dare anyone to sit before a camera or sit before an office of victims or myself or others and tell them that this is acceptable behavior, (laughs) you know, and they stand by it. That's not, you know, that's not what we hear. And so the solution part of it is like, great, we all agree and let's do something about it. Let's come together, right? You know, and if I can help and be that bridge and bring someone from either a political side um, over to the other, or if it's maybe someone from a less marginalized community to be able to kind of understand maybe how this is playing out in others, or even if it's a digital divide, someone who's not on the internet quite a bit, maybe just because of their age, may not understand that our youth, this is their daily, you know, living and breathing. And then that's absolutely right. This is not an issue that I personally have been affected by. And I think that's the point. It Mm. doesn't have to be me to stand up for other people. And that's something that I really wanted when I was in these type of positions is someone to stand up for me, even though they couldn't understand or they had never had it happen to them to have that kind of empathy and allyship. And I think we're all just trying to prove that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've said something in the past I've I've heard of a statement, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it, I'll get it partly right, but it's something like, if you don't see a seat for yourself at the table, pull up a chair. And, and you've said something similar, but with a, with, a, with a different twist, which I really like, you've said, bet on yourself, don't wait for an invitation, because we're already waiting to welcome you. And I love that twist, because the emphasis is on, we want you here. 
you know, whether or not we have the presence of mind to actually invite you in, you are wanted. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that mentality, what what you're communicating when you said that and gave that advice? I think there's one part is I want me there, right? And I want that for other people. And I'm say that statement in the way of, because you have a desire and you have a passion to be at that seat, that should count just as much as the person who doesn't want you there, right? So who says that that, that the, the people who don't want you there get the most votes, right? You've got a big vote and it's what you want to do. And so it's encouraging people. And it's the same talk I had to give myself is no one's opening that door all the time. No one's inviting you in. Let me go probe. Because in that way, it's not you telling yourself no, you know, you're letting them be the bad actor. And then the second part is, is that some people don't recognize how uh, wide their blinders are. And so they think they have a blind spot on this one certain section, but you're like, no, no, you're fully blind. You're fully blind. You cannot see anything, right? And so sometimes they would welcome you and they just don't know it. You know, they, they don't know that they need your idea or that they, that they need your support. And others just think they've just been waiting, you know, and they don't realize that they needed to open the door, right? They're just waiting for someone to come in. So I just encouraging people, go ahead and try the lock, open the door, see what happens. I love that, that perspective, Peyton. Thank you so much. And there's an extension to this that, that you've said previously And this was professional advice that you actually gave to your younger self, which was to learn and recognize what the difference is between having a seat at the table, being allowed to speak at that table, and what it's like to be heard at that table. Could you elaborate on that as well? I think that's something that has come with maturity and the higher you go, I think that that point is is most profound. And so I think there's a certain point where you think that you've made it in the sense of like, well, great, I got to sit at the table, I got in the meeting, et cetera. But you don't realize that there's invisible walls where you might be there, you know, people see you, but the protocols in the room wouldn't allow for you to speak up, you know, like you're a support staff or these people are the ones who run the meeting or who speak about it. And you may not realize that, but you will learn that those kind of situations exist. And I think even when you get past that and you're speaking and then you're realizing they're moving on to the next topic, you know, or they're saying, oh, this other thing is more important. This financial item is more important or this person's voice outranks yours more important. Then you realize that you could be in the room, you could be at the table, you could be speaking, but then other point is being heard. And, you know, there's two sides to that. It's speaking in a way that people can receive the message. Again, this is reading the room because not all messages can be received in the same way, but it's also to just me just being blunt in the sense that like people may choose to really disregard your presence and your advice. And so that's something that I wanted to switch up that saying quite a bit and bring a little realism to it based on what many of us have seen of how things really go down. Mm -hmm. Do you have advice or a story to share about being heard and making sure that you were heard, you know, that might inspire our community if they find themselves speaking? (laughs) They've gotten to that stage where they're speaking at their table, but it's not landing yet. 
Yeah, I think the thing that I would say, and it also comes from personal experience, but also from observations, is I think that you can really butt your head up against trying to get a person to hear you, whether it's a vertical organization in reality or these invisible walls. And so you might spend months, 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 years, years kind of trying to climb that ladder or that wall with that person. And I think the advice that I would give is sometimes that person is flawed and it doesn't really matter how you do your hair, how many degrees you have, how you present yourself, which days of the weekend and why you're not going to get past because they are a blocker. So identifying them as a blocker sooner than later might free up your time and energy, your self-respect, your dignity, and moving on to another environment that would appreciate you and wants to hear you and or another person that would appreciate you and want to hear you. And so um, that is not to say give up. It's just more strategy of trying to get to the same goal. I think that that advice is so crucial because... We spend so, so much of our waking life at work, you know, and the the community that I'm part of, the Breakline community, like this is a really high-performing, hard-charging, driven community that wants to contribute. And I think we can forget sometimes about our own well-being in, in that pursuit of professional growth and the power to just say, no, <laughs> like this is not, this is no longer the right environment for me. This right. is no longer the right team. That's powerful. Not my zoo, not my monkeys. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Peyton, we, as you know, we, Breakline is a community that is comprised of veterans, women, people of color. Many folks in our community are the first in their families to go to college to start working in the tech sector. And there's a pronounced pattern of imposter syndrome. And I don't think that's limited to breakline. I think that that's sort of a universal human affliction. But have you faced moments of imposter syndrome in your own career? And if so, how have you navigated through those? To be really transparent, I think the way I navigated it is I've been able to see that it wasn't imposter syndrome from some other people. It was really straight imposters. I was like, there's no way that you're going to tell me that you can do this job better than me. You're more qualified, et cetera. So I think that that is probably the biggest thing to face is, is not just looking inward of like why you're not qualified, but to look around the room and realize, you know, whether it was nepotism or some other reasons, not everybody mm. in that room is qualified. And so you shouldn't just immediately count yourself out <laughs> based on who you see in the room because you don't really know the context and the depth and the and texture and the fabric of who, how, and how they got into that room. So bet on yourself. <laughs> mm, I love that so much. Such great advice and so true. We have a lot of working parents in our community. And it's just, I've been thinking lately about the, like, the integration of sometimes of the busiest moments in our life, in our lives, in various facets of our lives that all kind of overlap at the same time. Having children, building a career, 
sometimes taking care of our parents or other loved ones as we move through these seasons, and it it all comes together at the same time. (laughs) Thoughts from you on how to navigate it, how to keep your head above water. And and I just mentioned a whole bunch of things. I didn't even mention your your continued service on top of all that. So, you know, do you have survival strategies or mechanisms or tips or tricks for our community as they move through this very busy season of life? I have a couple and one if you're my age or older. You're already stuck. You can't do anything about it. So this is for the younger crowd. And I think the advice I would give you is to know that at between a certain age, not in your control, but life will likely sandwich all of these things together. So the financial plan that you start building when you're in high school, college, or in your youth is not about retirement. It's rather about how you're going to eke through this period, which could last anywhere from 10 to 30 years or more, or where you have family, aging parents, children, schools, plays, this, et cetera, your home, and you're supposed to be building your own career. So I think uh, the older advice, which was just like, oh, 401k, retirement plan, et cetera, was based on a model that was a little bit different. Family and the nuclear family was a bit different. And so were, to be honest, uh, retirement benefits were different and pensions. You know, those things don't exist for a lot of folks anymore. Um, and so that would be for the younger crowd is to spend more time on that planning that way, if there is a problem and you can pay for it, it's just an expense. <laughs> if you can't pay for it, it's a problem, right? Such and, a good point. <laughs> and then I think for those who are already in it, you know, I include myself in that. I think, you know, they have a saying that, you know, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first, you know, before you can help others. Easier to say all of us have the scars from not doing it. But I think that's one thing that generationally that we probably should improve that probably hasn't been improved, right? People were just getting through this period through pure grit, which causes physical and and health and, and mental health issues. So I think the first one is try to navigate that space. You can show up better for other people too. The second thing is I think um the priorities are important. And I think to give people grace to decide what's the priority at a different time, not to push people in a corner of like, oh, you can be everything, right? And you should be everything. And it should look like this. And it should show up in lipstick or heels or a suit or whatever it is. I think it's to give people the grace to um, decide and give yourself the grace to decide of what's more important to you at different times. So that way you can kind of take something out of overdrive and kind of put it on the back burner. It might be a couple months, it might be a couple years, and, and push one of those other things. And I think that, that we don't give ourselves and maybe we don't give others the grace. It leads to the anxiety that you need to be doing all, or if you can't do all, you can't do anything. And so um, considering I'm working through that myself, you know, I also am trying to do that. And I think this is one of the, the parts of speaking to people who are older than you, even though young folks, right, don't 
think they know anything. I think that that actually, you know, they can't catch you up on technology. They, you know, they can't catch you up on the latest stocks, but there's some principles and these are ones that you're talking about that are like family and life that don't change a, lot, a ton from generation to generation. And they think they'll be able to share, you know, some of the bridges that you're going to cross that you don't know you're going to cross but all happen to us, right? And some of them are really, really sad bridges that are going to happen to us just because we're, we're humans. And I think that is where some of that mentorship or finding somebody who's older than you might be a helpful guide in there. This is not book smarts here. This is life smarts. <laughs> Peyton, I know we're, we're coming up on time here. And I'm imagining some folks in our community listening to this and saying, how did she actually do it? You know, here you are with your distinctive service to our country and then your leadership roles at some of the biggest and most exciting brands in the entire world, you know, and I want other folks to look at your path and say, I can do that too. Any, you know, secrets to success, recommendations, suggestions or advice that we haven't covered today that that you would share with our community as they embark on this new phase of their careers? I think the first thing I would say is I did whatever I wanted to do. And that's what I would encourage them to do because who's top today doesn't mean they're top tomorrow. And I think that would be the biggest advice is that there's no regrets in that in that sense. The second thing I would say is for some people, things are just given to them as by accident. That's not my story. So I'm, I'm constantly reading. I'm constantly researching and I'm constantly on, whether it's opportunities for myself or for others, because, you know, I figured out at a younger age a little bit more what, you know, my end goal would be, would be service and and some of this public policy work. I think once you kind of get a grasp of kind of like kind of what you want to do, it's easier to kind of move around and, and find that. And then the third thing I would say is not to be discouraged, you know, sometimes two steps back is two steps back, but it's okay. You know, you might have to sidestep a couple times to go forward. So I want people to understand is, um, and sometimes you might just be discouraged or things don't work out for you just because, you know, someone may present this perfect picture. It's not always the case. And you learn a lot in those two steps back or four steps back, you know, and, and look at it as a learning experience. It keeps you positive. And it keeps you motivated versus if you just look at it as failure. Peyton Ihimi, head of America's public policy at Bumble. It has been such a treat to interview you. Thank you so much for being here for this fireside chat. Oh, you're most welcome. It's so great to be in the room with you again. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.